to commas. Commas is all things tech. Culture and technology coming together. Life hacks. The practicality right now in the inefficiency of the internet of buying and selling stuff is extraordinary. Entrepreneurship advice. I think the first thing is you got to understand your business inside out. Love and tech. I've almost reduced dating to kind of this very momentary snap of a person. It's going to be a fire show. I have yet to see something these days that's truly differentiated. New advice and new inspiration every show. This really is about the next generation of creators going faster, further than we did. And now, Sequoia Blodgett. Now let's start stacking them commas. We are talking all things tech, and on this episode, we'll hear from the man who made the Nike Monarch the highest grossing shoe in Nike's history, a founder showing you how to close the wealth gap, and a doctor delving into the worlds of mental health and brand identity. It's gonna be fire! Entrepreneurship advice. <laughs> Learn from the hottest and most successful investors, founders, and innovators in the game. Determine your greatness. It's time to get your knowledge up. Okay, okay, for sure, for sure. We've got a special guest on the line, Jason Maiden, the co-founder of Superheroic, whose mission is to help every child unlock their superpowers through footwear and apparel. Welcome to Commas, Jason. How's it going? Well, how you doing? How you doing? I'm great. So you have a really interesting story. You grew up on the south side of Chicago and against all odds that encompass some incredible tragedies throughout that process. You started working for Phil Knight and Michael Jordan. Tell us a little bit about that journey and how that all came to be. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, it was a, a fascinating experience in terms of, you know, just going from the south side to, to Beaverton, Oregon, to the campus. It, it really was driven through one persistent phrase that I would tell myself, which was, why not? Um, you know, growing up in Chicago at the age of seven, I had a pretty um, traumatic experience happen to me. You know, I was diagnosed with septicemia, which is a severe blood infection. And I was, you know, essentially on my deathbed and had, you know, people around me discussing my mortality. And it was, a, it was something that I remember deeply, uh, you know, as a child, just this feeling of this, you know, if this is my last thing, if, if this is my last time being alive, what is it that I truly want to do? And ideas and thoughts of creativity and ideas and thoughts of play were what I hold on to the most. Thankfully, you know, I made it through that season, but that carried me into having a fearless spirit to try and do things that other people would say is difficult or impossible. So that why not monster kind of drove me. Um, I wrote letters to Nike from the age of 10 all the way on. Um, you know, often we get catalogs and, and stickers and posters in return, but never really had a true interaction until I found the customer service phone number. And then I reached out and got in touch with the person and learned more about the structure and this, this, this thing called an internship and the recruiting process. And from there, I just obsessed over, you know, finding a way to get there. Um, ended up in design school in Detroit at TCS, um, College for Creative Studies, where I majored in industrial design and, and really fell in love with the, the, the act of making beautiful products that served the purpose and had a functional output um, that led me to, you know, receiving an internship finally with, with, with the brand and, and the rest is history. Wow, that's insane. So you were Nike's youngest African-American design intern. What was that like? Yeah, it was, it, that was crazy. When I found out, you know, that I was the first African-American intern and the youngest, it was, uh, you know, it, it, it was really confusing, to be honest, because... You see the athletes and they look like me. But then mm -hmm. I realized that there weren't a lot of people that created me on their behalf that looked like us. Mm -hmm. So when I got there and I found out about, you know, the recruitment process from design schools and looked at the numbers writ large nationally and globally of people who look like me in the design industry, 
it changed my perspective. You know, it, it feels great to say you're the first, but my mission became to not be the last. Right. Um, so getting in the door, having that opportunity, and then learning how to navigate the landscape of business, you know, um, the creative industry and, you know, the innovation industry was something that I would think um, would have, you know, been very intimidating, but because I had great mentors and support systems and I was confident enough to speak and advocate on behalf of not only my folks, but the people I work for, which are the athletes, I carved out my own lane. You know, at that time, there was no such thing as sneaker culture, you know, or, or, or collecting. It was people who were just in love with footwear and love with design and love with storytelling, and we kind of congregated around one core concept, which was to serve the athlete and do our best job for the people who were competing at a high level. Um, you know, for me, coming from Chicago and having a unique point of view, which now, you know, is called streetwear, uh, that, those two worlds kind of came together. You know, comic books, fashion, BMX, skate, and high performance, those were all the things I were into. And so being in the brand at that age really um, gave me the opportunity to be part of the foundation of what we now get to see, you know, bubbling up and happening at, at these things that, you know, like ComplexCon or other mm-hmm. major events where you see culture and technology coming together. So it was fun to be at the forefront of it all. That's so cool. What see? What do you think about Complex Con now, and what do you think about how they're leveraging what was what you essentially helped to start? Uh, I mean, you know, I, I try to keep you know my my direct opinions to myself, but I do think that it's great to be able to have uh, a way to give people access. You know, um, I don't I don't I don't spend any you know of my time you know um, having deep critical thoughts with folks. You know, of course, there's all these things that I would do different, but. I do believe that the that they've created a moment that is accessible to anyone who can get there. Um, and anyone who wants to participate in the culture, um, they can be there, which is great. Because some people are observers, some people are creators, and some people are just late to the table and kind of don't understand it. So the environment of Complex Times, you know, now that it's in its third year, you know, um, I, I think they've had the good fortune of having data and feedback to smooth out some of the rough edges and make it a more, you know, cohesive, inclusive event and, from, from what I see on social and some of my friends who are there participating, it feels like the vibe is right. It really is about a celebration of creativity and culture, which is what it's essentially meant to do. Um, so what they've done is just take what's been you know, the best things on the Internet and bring it to life in real, in, in real life. Um, you know, I'm, my, my vibe is perfectly aligned with some of the people that have attended this year. Um, you know, kind of the anti-troll movement, you know, people celebrating individuality, individuality creativity, joyfulness. I mean, that stuff is needed in the culture. Like, we have a good a good opportunity to really display beauty at a time where it's desperately needed. And so, from what I've seen and what I've heard, Complex Con is doing a great job of preserving beauty and celebrating youth culture um, on, a, on a grand scale, which is dope. Yeah, I've seen some dope content come from it, too. So let's stay on the topic of sneakers. You were instrumental in creating shoes for Eminem, Carmela Anthony, Chris Paul, and then the Monarch, which is the highest grossing shoe in Nike history. Tell us about that process. Like, what was that like for you? Man, it was, you know, with, with, with good design or great design, you really have to learn the subject matter. And you have to use a process that I've called, you know, immersive empathy, where it isn't just observation, it isn't just interviewing, it's really participating in the scheduling, the psychological profiling, the physiological profiling, like understanding the needs that they can't articulate. And so whether it's an athlete or an entertainer, I have to understand them at a level that was almost, you know, um, at the level of someone they've known their whole entire life. Because the, pro- the thing about the product that they wear that it allows them to transform into their exemplar self. They were going from Marshall Mathers to Eminem, from Chris Paul to CP3. 
you know, from Derek Jeter to G. I mean, these people, when they, when they put on their uniforms or they get on stage to perform, they have to live up to the expectations of the people who may be seeing them for the first time. So it's my job to remove all distraction. It's my job to not have them worry about what's happening on their foot or on their body, but to simply perform at a high level. So you create a way to deliver value but almost be invisible. And that's the hardest thing because good design is not intrusive. It should recede to the background. It should just exist within the spectrum of the athlete or entertainer's world. But it shouldn't be something that they consciously are constantly thinking about because the fit is wrong or, you know, or the laces keep coming untied. So my job is to basically be impactful but invisible at the same time. Um, so it was really, really, really a, a balance of, you know, finding out things that um, they couldn't articulate, like I said, through deep understanding of their psychology, but then also studying them biomechanically and knowing what their body would need a year and a half out. So looking at behavioral patterns, looking at physiological patterns of play, and then extrapolating out 12 to 18 months, okay, what are they going to prepare and do in the off-season to be better? Last season, it's, you know, for Chris Paul in particular, if one season ago Chris Paul put on a bunch of muscle because he wanted to go to the basket more, and then he knows the defenses are going to change in the off-season to account for that, he may trim down to become faster and move off the screen and then go towards jump shooting. So I have to think five to ten steps out. I have to think, what does he want to do next season while he's still in the this, in this season today? Um, that's a really hard thing to do, and it takes a lot of humility because you can't inject your own perspective. You have to be observant, and you have to listen, and you have to find those little nuances and those little, those little um, you know, tweaks in their behavior um, that you can then document and then prepare future products for them. So it was, to me, I love it. I love it. It allows me to really learn about what it takes to be great and that's the beautiful thing of working with some of the best athletes in the world is I can take what I've learned and apply it to my own work ethic, my own skill set, and my own direct life. So I, I feel very fortunate and blessed to have that experience. <laughs> Speaking of taking what you learned and applying it to your own direct skill sets and your own direct life, this sounds a lot like superheroic. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yeah. your company and like why you launched it. Yeah, you know, um, our company is, is, is pretty straightforward. You know, we exist to entertain and delight every child in the world through imagining the interactive pure physical play. Um, it was born out of an insight that was given to me um, by observing my own son who had overcome or was in the midst of dealing with, um, you know, a medical issue and, and, and realizing that my gifts and talents could be used to not only help him emotionally um, and behaviorally, but physiologically. So, you know, I quit my job. Spent, you know, four years, roughly three years, back down in the Silicon Valley at my, at my graduate school on the model Stanford, researching and understanding everything from, you know, what was causing the childhood obesity epidemic to what was happening with them psychologically, what was influencing them socially. Um, I looked at nonprofits, I looked at for-profits, and what I settled on was a company that simply exists to make better product that allows them to dream and emote and feel good about who they are and eventually become their own version of their exemplar self, which is a superhero. So the footwear itself is built specifically for how children grow and how children move. Most of the products we made for adults were simply shrunken down adult proportions, um, and they didn't have technology that actually worked for the child the way they needed. Now, coincidentally, or not coincidentally, um, some of the bigger companies are starting to, you know, repeat our language and see our insight, which for me is good. If you're, if you're, if your passion and your intent is to really serve children, then it requires all of us. But if it's a marketing tactic, it's no better than what they've already done in terms of providing adult footwear that's strengthened for children. But what we do 
is we focus not only on the physiological needs, but the emotional and behavioral. So the language we use, the imagery we use, it's all specifically designed to unlock their, their best self. So whether you're a young girl from Compton or you're a young man from the UK or you're, you know, some kid from Brooklyn, it doesn't matter what's unique about you. Your differences are your superpower, and we help bring that out through play. Um, and so it's, it's, to me, it's a labor of love. It's serving the interests of that seven-year-old Jason that I talked about that laid in the hospital bed and dreamed of playing with his friends one more time. Now I'm consistently able to be with children who are like me, children who, you know, who, who are trying to understand their bodies, trying to understand how they feel, trying to understand, you know, how they're growing and how they're um, developing, but need that reinforcement and positivity in a pure, consistent way. And so I'm excited because we launched our first product. We've been able to have what we call a hero lab, which is putting the heroes in context to let them play and show what they can do. We've grown our engagement with our audience for the parent, which we call guardians. And I'm really looking forward to what, what, what happens in 2019 as we begin to ramp up and scale through, through some unique partnerships we're going to announce in the next few months. That is so cool. Congratulations on all of that. But I know it wasn't smooth coming out in terms of getting fundraising and that whole process. So tell us a little bit about what that was like for you. You know, fundraising is never easy. I think the misnomer in that word is fun. Um, <laughs> because like, <laughs> fundraising is not fun. Um, at all. Um, but, you know, it's necessary, you know, if you don't have the means and you don't have your own personal wealth to bootstrap, um, you know, specifically for a hardware company, you do need venture capital. Um, so, I mean, it started off with, like I said, me rebranding myself. I knew that being just a footwear designer alone, even though I have worked on technology, have my business degree for Stanford, people only will look at you from what they can Google, unfortunately. And so whether or not you've done a million different things, you're only as good as what's coming up in the search engine, right? Like if people see me for Jordan brand, that's what they're going to think of me. So it took me some time to diversify my skill set um, here in the Valley. So I joined startups. I worked in venture capital. I really wanted to learn why they would tell me no and then to, you know, prevent, uh, prevent it from happening. So, you know, by being on the offense and saying, okay, if I can work for a VC firm, be in the room listening to entrepreneurs pitch, and then hearing what the VCs say when they leave, that gives me an advantage for me to present myself in a way that's irrefutable. If I work for a startup and I learn how to raise capital from the founder's side, learn how they prepare their decks, learn how they prepare their stories, how they find their insights and study the market, that also gives me a leg up because now I know both sides of the table. And so that took about, like I said, almost about four years, you know, repositioning myself, being patient, taking jobs that weren't necessarily you know, the most high-paying or the most attractive that they were necessary for skill building. Um, and then when it was time, you know, I went out and presented, you know, my first concepts and my insights and showed the market size and, and you know, and, and then had the ability to go and uh, prove that I can go and secure the actual manufacturing relationships, build the product, and ship the product without a huge infrastructure. So we went from, you know, from our speed skate stage uh, presentation deck to production and shipping within roughly about eight months which if you look at the footwear industry's typical time frame, it takes about 12 to 18. So we were able to cut out a lot of the fat because we had a sharp insight. We had a great way of testing our product rapidly um, and then iterating on, our, on the insights, speaking with our audience, learning what they were looking for, studying their behaviors, and then preparing something that we wanted to put out into the world. So it was a whirlwind process, um, a roller coaster at times, but it's exactly what I needed for me to personally grow and to get over a lot of my fears and, in my own insecurities, but at the same time, put this put this thought and this product into the world 
and get the reaction we need um, to now be able to scale. So, you know, it, it's never fun, but it's necessary. And I think, you know, the, the trick to it all is keeping a healthy mindset and keeping people around you that don't just feed you, you know, soup and tell you what you want to hear, but they tell you what you need to hear. You know, they give you that critical feedback. They help you edit. They help to remind you that at the end of the day, the work that you do does not define who you are. And it's, you shouldn't be attached to the work in a way where your self-worth is attached to the work because, you know, it changes over time. And so a lot of founders, you know, um, no one tells us that part. Like, hey, you go and pitch, you have a company, but you are not your company. A lot of people tell you you are, but you're not. Because as you grow, you evolve, you start to fall in love with other things you didn't know existed within your opportunity. So you may start off as a product-led person and fall in love with marketing. So I just tell everyone, be open to change, be open to following the flow of the process, but realize that this isn't intended to be fun. It's intended to be, you know, um, you know, foundational for your growth. Because if it was fun and easy, everybody would do it. This is the hardest thing any one individual will ever attempt in their life, you know, in the business sense. And so just be prepared for that, be ready for it, have a good amount of resolve and introspection and self-care, and, and then you'll turn off on. That's real talk. How much did you ultimately have to raise in order to get the products off the ground? And what did you end up raising, like, in its entirety? Um, to get all the products shipped, testing, all the materials, we raised in two tranches a total of $6.8 million. To get everything out the door and on the, you know, built the infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, for hardware, which essentially is what footwear is, um, it's a mixture of ordering raw materials, cutting tools, testing, ordering certain values, shipping, custom packaging. It's a, it's a lot of different capital requirements that software startups don't have to attribute, you know, don't have to account for. Um, and so that's why, you know, doing a physical product is a lot more difficult to raise funds for because, you know, it takes longer for the return, but it takes more upfront capital to get what you want out into the world. So it's, it's the best expression um, for the audience. It's like, yeah, it is. It's a, it, was a, it was a very interesting process, man, but I'm glad I went through it. So you gave some amazing tips to entrepreneurs, but what about people who are looking to break into the fashion industry as designers, knowing that tech is becoming highly influential in the space? What advice would you give to them? Um, one, don't go to Instagram and think that by screen printing on a T-shirt that you're a designer. You're not. You're a fabricator. I think, you know, I think it doesn't do service to people who've actually been training with design. You, you won't be able to push the boundaries and leverage the technology that exists. Um, but the whole point of going to get traditional school or traditional training is to understand the materials and processes and learn what's happening in real time with the future of manufacturing. And that doesn't just happen from watching YouTube. It doesn't happen from going to Instagram and copying and repeating. I see a lot of people who will say, hey, man, I'm printing T-shirts. I'm a designer. And that's no, you're a fabricator. And I hate to bust anybody's bubble, but that's like saying that because I, I read WebMD, I'm now certified to be a doctor. It's, <laughs> it's information does not give you skill set. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think we live in an age where people, because they have access to information, they automatically believe that they can compete or have the same skill set as someone who's trained. And as we move towards automation, which is going to be even more increasingly important in design, training is what's going to allow people to really push the boundaries of design. Not just exposure and information, but proper training. Now, you don't have to get a degree, but you do have to learn. And whether you learn by doing or you study and then meet someone, you're going to have to be trained to take advantage of these technologies. Because without that, you won't have access to, you know, a machine that can 3D print cotton or a machine that can laser cut an entire 
you know, uh, functional pieces, you know, or, 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 or material that they can be used for a cushioning system. You know, you won't have laser centering. You won't have some of the resin-based, you know, 3D printing technologies that you see happening with Adidas and all these other companies. You won't have access to that because that comes with people who are highly skilled, who have different backgrounds, who have the machinery in these, in these facilities, which are often schools. And so, you know, I would say anyone in the fashion industry that is serious about the future of making, you either have to find a way to intern with the, with the manufacturing facility and learn how these machines work or go to school. Um, because you can't learn that online. You have to do that hands-on training. You have to, it's a craft. At the end of the day, design is a craft. And craft is, is the manipulation of, of atoms, not bits. And you have to be able to touch and feel the medium that you're working with in order to manipulate it and, and use it in a way that is innovative and, and, and forward-leaning. Um, so I do think that people get their start and their interest from looking at social media and, and YouTube, and that's exciting because now you have the basics. You have just enough to draw pictures and just enough to understand some of the learn some of the words and vocabulary. So you, you kind of can skip over the core curriculum, but the hands-on materials and processing, manufacturing stuff, like you have to, you have to, you know, get some form of an apprenticeship or go to school to be exposed to it. Um, I hate to say it because some people think there's a way around it, but the reality is that it's not because these machines are so expensive and they're so rare and either, you know, only large corporations and universities have access to them, but they're going to be what we have to use in the future to create. So, uh, you know, I'm excited. I think the barrier to entry is a lot lower, you know, because now, you know, um, back in the day with design, they judged you on your portfolio alone. Now, today, they, you can be judged simply on your concept and you can make your concept in, in physical form. Um, you know, for me, I couldn't make a shoe in physical form when I started out in 1999. It was way harder. Now, I can learn 3D modeling, 3D print that, and walk into school and show them where my interests are and then tell them, hey, I, with proper training, I can go and do this even faster and better. Um, so I do think there's some benefits, you know, that I didn't have um, because of the 3D modeling space and 3D printing. But I would say overall, the deep processes that will change the future of manufacturing, you won't you, – you can't learn that online. You have to have hands-on training from corporations or either schools. And the best way to get the corporate experience, if you don't have a family member to hook you up, is to get an internship while you're in school. Because um, that's, the, that's the name of the game. Now that automation is here and we'll see it scale within the next maybe 10 to 15 years, at least in the footwear space, probably sooner depending on robotics and where that's headed and AI and where that's headed, um, you're not going to get that just by watching people online. You know, I'm sorry to break the news, but I think a lot of People have been misled, spending money, taking classes with folks that simply aren't equipped to compete with what's happening in the future of manufacturing. Well, we have come full circle. Get your internship. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't replace that hands-on knowledge. Right, right. Jim's were drops. Get that internship. You know, obviously, where can people find you if they are looking to continue to seek you out? Or where can they find Superheroic? You know, Superheroic easy to find at Superheroic on all social platforms. Um, Superheroic.com. For me, it's just at Jason Maiden on Instagram. Um, I try to, you know, connect with anyone who reaches out to me within reason. You know, uh, if you have career questions or you want to, you know, learn more about what I was saying about, you know, the entrepreneurship space or the, the future manufacturing space, and more than one of the small resources your way or insight. You know, I'm not here to, to tell anyone not to try. I just want people to try and get further faster than I did. Um, I didn't have someone telling me the truth and navigating because the industry was so young. So 
I want to burst the one bubble, but I don't want to pretend like this is easy. There's a reason why there's less than, you know, 2% of people on the planet that have the career that I have, you know, because uh, it, it, it's a competitive field with very, you know, I would say guarded information, you know, for a specific class of people. And now that we can democratize this info, they're not going to just let you walk in and get it easily. You have to fight for it. And so I'm here to give you ways to learn how to fight smarter so you don't have to repeat my mistakes because this really is about, you know, the next generation of creators going faster, further than we did, you know? I totally understand. And that is so dope because so many people want to harbor their knowledge. And so for you to be like, all right, hit me. (laughs) That's rare. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us. We so appreciate you being on the call with us. What's good? It's Sequoia, and we're back, and we've got special guest Ania Williams on the line. She's the founder of Black and Brown Founders and Zebras Unite, and recently started working with venture capitalist Arlen Hamilton from Backstage Capital, who is gracing the cover of Fast Company this month to help her run her Philadelphia Accelerator. Welcome to Commas, Ania. How's it going? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thanks for being on. So, so many people who don't live in Silicon Valley have no idea what the term zebra or unicorn or rhino company means. Can we break that down a little bit and tell us a little bit about what you're doing with Zebras Unite? Yes, of course. So, Zebras Unite is really about creating a more equitable tech ecosystem. Like when we think about Silicon Valley, we think about tech and startups, there is a a model that they have most of them follow, which is to, you know, build up a company really fast and have it create a bunch of money really quickly. And then it's going to have an exit. So its investors can make money. And I think what we're seeing is that it has effects on other people and lives and society in ways that we couldn't have predicted and are are really harmful. And so uh, Zebras Unite is really about having founders who really are thinking more intentionally about the effect that their companies have on the world, but still want to be able to build a profitable business, um, can have somewhere to think about startups and think about investment and think about how we can create change um, while we make dollars. That's awesome. So when we talk about unicorn companies, we're talking about like billion dollar companies. And usually those type of companies have some type of venture. They're growing. They're That's like a Facebook or a... a, a or Uber. Exactly. So, yeah. so with Zebras, is that like the polar opposite of that? Is that what you're saying? I wouldn't say that it's the polar opposite. I think that it is thinking about, you know, building companies, solving problems with technology or not, um, and really, like, thinking about uh, how you finance that company and thinking about the culture of that company and thinking about the business structure of that company. So, for example, with some startups that are venture-backed, typically there are people that are on, as they call the cap table, like people who have some, some significantly, like, some significant equity stake in that company, like they own a little piece of that company. But most of the employees of Uber don't own a significant part of Uber. Um, And so when Uber does have a big exit and it makes a lot of money for some of the people at the top, the people at the bottom aren't going to make nearly as much money. Um, And so like with Zebras, like an example could be that maybe everyone who works at that company owns some part of the company that's significant um, and that it thinks more about how it values their employees. Because I think that our biggest tech companies, which are also the biggest companies in the world today, um, they don't always treat people well. (laughs) Yeah, no, I definitely understand that. (laughs) So what are some examples of like zebra companies? Yeah. um, So zebra companies would be companies like um, like Basecamp. 
uh, when we're talking about tech companies, it could be companies like MailChimp. It could be companies like Buffer. Um, these are companies that are in the news for doing really well, um, but also for kind of breaking some of the rules and how we think about tech startups and how they could look and doing things a little bit differently because they care about the people. That's awesome. And so with Black and Brown Founders, that's also another company that you founded. Tell us a little bit about that and what your plans are in regards to what you're accomplishing with that company. Yeah. Well, some people know that I did also start a um, a company called Tencel, and we uh, make tech jewelry for women, and we are venture-backed. And um, while I did raise some investment for that company, it really wasn't as much as the business really needed. It was a hardware company, which are really, really expensive to build. And um, while we were able to, to really like make magic happen with, with what we were able to do, there were some lessons that I learned along the way that I felt should really be imparted to um, founders of color, like Black and Latinx founders specifically. And so I started Black and Brown Founders um, as a nonprofit that helps Black and Latinx entrepreneurs start tech companies. And through the lens of how do you do that when you're working with really modest resources. And that was inspired by the journey of myself and by many other incredible entrepreneurs who are out there building businesses that have had to do more with less and have figured out um, different ways in which you can kind of, you know, skin the cat, so to speak, so that if you're trying to get from point A to point B, where point A is the idea and point B is like generating revenue or building or scaling your business, um, that you're able to do that in ways that are not relying on, you know, an investor to come and write you a check because the reality is most of us ain't getting checks. <laughs> <laughs> that is all the way the real. <laughs> that is 99% the reality. So there you go. So what's been the success behind that? Um, it's been great. So we started it uh, early last year and, um, you know, it just was one of those things where I had, I had no idea what the appetite for it was going to be. Um, but it was, it exceeded what I even expected. And, um, and then I, I quickly realized that that was something that deserved a lot more of my time and attention. Um, and so I, I've just been investing my time and attention to it. And like other people have joined me on, this journey. So since then, we've done a few events. We've done a couple workshops. Uh, we've been doing events in, in Philadelphia. Um, we just finished our, our biggest conference yet, which was North Star, which we partnered with the city of Philadelphia on. And we had some really great sponsors who supported it. And um, just people came out and were transformed. And that is why we do what we do. We basically help entrepreneurs see how they can, you know, start businesses and, and get their ideas off the ground using technology and doing that without a lot of money. Arlen Hamilton has been extremely vocal in the investment space. And anyone who's been in the mix understands that she's super passionate about underrepresented minorities not getting enough funding and vowing to help change that. Yeah, well, the funny, I guess the funny part about it is that like Arlen is, is one of my, my investors. And um Really, I got introduced to her initially uh, was to 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 talk about Tinsel and and would backstage become an investment, and we were one of their earlier investments. And um, as things evolved, and Arlen and I have also you know a, a personal relationship, and her watching me and me watching her, and us kind of watching this very parallel experience that we were having and building our companies, like she also saw the potential in black and brown founders and why it needed to exist. And the first thing that she said to me when I told her about it was like, of course, like, because, you know, even as much as she wants to, like, she's like, I can't invest in every incredible founder that I see. Like, that's just the nature of venture capital and how that kind of 
avenue of financing works, right? Like they can't invest in everyone. They have to, to really nail it down to a small percentage. And so she's like, she, she thought a lot about all the people that she wished she could have invested in and, and couldn't, and that she felt good to also be investing her time and energy and doing partnerships and trying to support um, an organization that was trying to address the need for everyone else. And so you're working with her with Backstage Capital now, with her accelerator. Yeah, so Black and Brown Founders is a is a partner of the Backstage Accelerator. We are helping them bring the accelerator to Philadelphia um, with the initiatives we're working on there. And also, um, you know, we're also helping with, with forming with the rest of, you know, many individuals all over the world who are working on forming this program right now. And it's, it's a very exciting time, um, and it's very exciting to be a part of it. So let's talk about the wealth gap in terms of technology. How do you think that technology is going to help close that gap? Mm, well, I think that technology is is the greatest tool that we have available to us today. I mean, when you think about like like we're living in a modern day gold rush, like technology is touching every part of our lives and it's 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 going to continue. Um, and so I think about it in the sense of like participation um, in what's happening today is transformative for people. Like, I mean, I live in San Francisco and like legit overnight people are becoming millionaires because yeah. of technology. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that when we look at what does that mean for, for opportunities for, uh, you know, underrepresented people in the industry. So women, people of color, LGBT, like, I mean, all of these things, there's opportunities to change the world just by having, you know, money and having power um, with money, because I think what we're learning today is that money has power. So I think any any ways that we can enable um, the voices that are usually marginalized to be able to participate in society and also to have, you know, thriving futures uh, is a good thing. And I think that technology offers that. A hundred percent, because now you see with Deshaun Amir, he just closed 23 million for Maven mm-hmm. and then Zoom Pizza with Julia Collins. She just closed 365 million. I was like, what? For pizza? Incredible. That's incredible. <laughs> right. People so, eat pizza. Yeah, I, it's clearly. <laughs> but I think it was more for like licensing her technology um, to these. Yeah, but it's amazing. Yeah. So you're definitely seeing that. So I'm super excited about where that's going as well. Yeah. How do you think your work with Black and Brown Founders is going to help to contribute to that? Yeah, I mean, like, our our goal is to help Black and Latinx people make money at the end of the day. Like, we want to really think about the ways in which, you know, business, yourself, your personal skills, your experience, all of these create opportunities that can be leveraged with technology. Um, There's just a lot of things that are happening as trends. Uh, right now that I think point to more people being self-employed and and starting to become entrepreneurs, if not because they think it's sexy, then by necessity, which, I mean, when we look at people of color, many of them are entrepreneurs by necessity. Um, How do we allow those opportunities to come and to change and transform? So I I hope that, that Black and Brown Founders in its work will both help instill you know, really fundamental, important information that founders need to have about how to build a healthy business, but also how to do that in the most savvy, modern ways possible, 
Um, and so we can we can both do well and, and create change. Love it. Thank you so much, India. We so appreciate you being on. And if somebody's interested in finding out more information about your work, where can they go? Yeah, they can go to blackandbrownfounders.com um, and find us on online at BB Founders. It's life hacks. Life hacking, baby. Tech tips and tools for everyday needs. Tap in. Control, copy these shortcuts and simplify your life. You heard us. I have the life hack for you. Financial literacy, for some reason or another, was not taught to me in school, or I missed it, or I was sleeping through a few sessions, or I really don't know what happened. But if you're like me and you're spending money and you have no clue where it goes, and by the end of the month, you have more month at the end of your money, not more money at the end of your month, but more month at the end of your money, think about that, then you need to pay attention. All right, so... The life hack that I have is called Mint. It's going to teach you how to break down everything from bills to your credit score. It allows you to budget and create goals. So what happens is you upload all of your accounts. You set budgets to track those accounts. And essentially, it's telling you how much you're spending throughout the month so that you don't go over those budgets. And everything is automated. So it pulls those accounts data and then uploads it to the system. And then when you don't go over the budget, it rolls that money over. And when you do go over the budget, it alerts you via email telling you, hey, you might be spending too much. So you guys definitely need to check that out. It's going to break down your groceries to your entertainment. And if you have a business, of course, you don't want to be commingling funds. That's a whole nother conversation for a whole different day. But you should definitely have a personal and business account. And if you do have a business account, it also allows you to allocate those funds to that account as well. So if you think about it in business, you have what's called reconciliation. So essentially what will happen is you're going to re- reconcile all of your records and you're going to send that to your accountant or your CPA to pay your taxes. But that's also what you should be doing on a personal finance level. So you have obviously money that's going into an investment account. If you have an investment account and you're ultimately saving for your retirement, which is something I think none of us are thinking about right now, but you absolutely should be. So check that out. Mint.com. Again, budget allocation, boost your credit score and get your high yield savings account together. Did you guys even know there was a high yield savings account? I didn't even know that. So Mint's going to give you all of that information. Up next, we're jumping into love and tech with Dr. Allie, and we're taking calls and giving love advice for all you folks who have been swiping and double tapping. Yo, 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 yo. Love, life, and tech. With Sequoia Blodgett. Just part of our culture. Because balance is real between the swipe culture, mental health, personal growth, career, and just about everything in between. Just keeping it real. It's a lifestyle. Incredible vibes, incredible people. Love, love. And tech. What's good? It's Sequoia, and we're back on Commas with Dr. Allison Hicks, a mental health expert and brand curator who helps clients build clarity in their life and brands. Welcome to Commas, Dr. Ali. How are you? Yes, I'm fabulous. I'm so happy to be here. I absolutely love Sequoia, if anyone doesn't know that. Yay! Absolutely love her. Okay, okay. <laughs> So you have a very interesting niche touching up on people's mental health states and how they showcase that in their brands. How did you come up with that? So it started when, so, okay, graduating from college, I wanted to move to Italy because I, (laughs) I had a crush on this boy and he lived in Italy. And so I told my parents that I was learning Italian, moving to Italy and becoming a fashion designer. Okay. And my parents were like, absolutely not, not going to happen, not in a million years, sit yourself down Go to grad school, get your doctorate. Okay. 
So they forced me to get my doctorate. Rational parents. <laughs> rational, very, very rational parents. And then my dad was telling me while I was in school, he was like, well, if you love fashion so much, just become a fashion psychologist. Just that's integrate. interesting. Yeah, he was like, just integrate the two things that you love, your hobby with the thing that's more guaranteed and put those two things together and do that. And there are some people now who are fashion psychologists and I'm not necessarily in that niche. I'm not <laughs> one of them, but I kind of took it and expanded it to brand and aesthetics. I ended up doing my dissertation on um, cosmetic surgery and the way African-American women feel about their appearance based on mm. media exposure. And so I realized that there was a really large area where we are being impacted, all humans are being impacted by the things that we see every day and therefore now have to put out an image that is um, that impacts us holistically. That's insane. And it's very interesting. So what type of clients do you typically get? So it's, it's interesting. In the beginning, I wanted to work mostly with like individuals and like help individuals kind of create their own like social media brands. But it's actually ended up being businesses, mm. like legit businesses. And, and that was the transition because I never really necessarily worked in business. So mm-hmm. I had to make sure that I would help people understand exactly what it is I was going to do. Cause like, I'm not going to create like a hardcore strategic plan for your corporation and I'm not putting together <laughs> your business plan. You know, <laughs> like that's a little, I mean, I'm sure we could get creative and figure something out, but that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to make sure that your touch points are all stunning and that they reflect the motto and the, the, the ethos of your company to make sure that everyone, everything that is outward facing is reflecting who you are as a person and who your company is as an organization. So how does mental health factor into that? Well, I think it factors into it because mental health is also human behavior. And when you're focused on human behavior, you're able to kind of understand what your buyer or the, the your target population, what would they be interested in? What do they want to see? What kinds of colors are important? You know, if you're a marijuana business, if you are in, you know, renewable energy, if you're in a space like that, you know, you're looking at greens and the, the shades of green matter. You know, you're looking at, you know, if you're in something clean, um, a cleaning company or something like that, you're looking at blue, even a medical business like blue, purple. So you want to have, you know, the the branding really down from colors to shapes. There is a, a whole research um, called Gestalt, German word meaning whole, looking at concepts of what humans want to actually see when they like per, on a perceptive level. So when you see like the logo here on this headphone, it's round for a reason because humans enjoy the shape of roundness. It gives you a, a sense of completion, a sense of safety. And then they have this little this little inroads here, which so I'm, I'm wondering, oh, it's called One. Oh, legit. Okay. Look at One headphones. Are we doing a little ad for them now? <laughs> you just plugged it. You just plugged this. I guess so. <laughs> but, you know, so there's like there's something to be said about the colors that you choose, the shapes that you choose, all of those things. And I feel like who better? to understand characters and people than someone who deals with people and characters all day. Love it. So when it comes to balancing relationships, love and tech, how do you think people should kind of react to that? Because I know that's been a topic of of conversation, obviously. And we have, at least I do. I know I work a ton and tech is one of those things where you can get inundated with your laptop and you don't see anybody for like days. So how do you balance the two? What's your recommendation? I I think it's almost like when my dad told me to integrate psychology and mental health, integrate technology into your social life, make it a part of what you do as opposed to, because I think we, a lot of times we want to eradicate it entirely. We're like, we have to have days and it is good to have a few days where it's like, okay, my eyes hurt. 
can I please not look at a screen today? Give me a moment. But I also think making sure that in all the things that you do, you have balance. So even in using technology, making sure that you're doing something positive with it. You're not just looking up twerk videos, but you're also looking up something that will truly feed you, right? It's called the feed for a reason. It's meant to feed your soul, meant to feed your spirit. So make sure that you have balance even in tech. So if you're on Instagram a lot, you know, who are the positive people that you're following? Who are the, you know, the quote sites, the just pure, beautiful imagery sites that you're following? And then you can go to Daquan and, and you can look up a video of somebody belly flopping and a tsunami coming out, you know? But it's like making sure that you have balance even in tech and that you're integrating your friends and your relationships as a part of your technological experience. So it's not kind of like out of context where you're doing something, you're kind of like falling down that little rabbit hole into like the cat video realm. Trust. I could be down that <laughs> rabbit hole for a long time. And next thing I know, I'm like, I've been on here for four hours. What has happened? Right, right. So with that being said, what would you recommend recommend in terms of balance and time? How long should one be inundated in their social? Oh, my goodness. Time is hard. I guess as much time as you can devote to it. Um, try to keep it to... Try to keep it to something that is it works for your life. So, for example, if you're on social media so much that you're not getting work done for school and you're failing out of school, you need to reevaluate. Right. So I would love to say, like, oh, keep it to, you know, an hour a day or keep it to two hours a day. But honestly, some people might need even less than that if mm -hmm. they're not functioning in a very healthy way on social media. And so I think it's also really important to begin to notice your own level of functioning and understand, like, so are things in my life changing now? Am I actually not going out with my friends because I'm on social media instead? Because that's not healthy. You should hang out with your friends if you can. I mean, if they live on another coast, I get it. But if you have people around you that are asking you to go out and you're like, nah, too busy, you know, Netflixing and chilling. I'm By too yourself. busy. Yeah. <laughs> We've all been there. Right. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you just got to take that initial step to force yourself to put down your tech, to put on some pants. Brush your hair, brush your teeth. Come out to Dash, record a show. Come out to you Dash, know. record a show. It's like, we could have done this. I could have been at home, right? On my couch, no. Right. Yeah, come out, be social, IRL, do things for real. I love it. So what recommendations do you have for people who are just getting into the branding space in terms of combining that mental health aspect and establishing their brand online? So the first thing I have people do is something that a lot of my clients are like, why are we doing this? <laughs> but um, because I think a lot of people just want to jump into shifting their brand image instantly. Like, well, let's look at colors. Let's do this. Let's do this now. Let's take pictures, create content. But the first thing I have people do is assess their value. So what are your values? What things do you believe in? So I have people go through like a long list. This whole I have this whole questionnaire. And one of the first questions I ask is, when was the last time you got so wrapped up in something that you lost track of time? That's and, a good one. And so people sit, will kind of sit and be like, Instagram? No, like a real thing. <laughs> Did you bike so long that you, you know, you lost track of time? Were you painting? Were you drawing? Were you getting yourself dressed? Because sometimes people like fashion is an expression of who they are as a person, right? And I have a number of other questions that I end up asking to kind of get to the crux of what are the things that are fundamentally important to you? And I ask you to, I, I provide like a long list of all these different values from creativity to um, family, to beauty, to travel, to new experiences. And you, you create, you distill it to five, five things that are kind of at the crux of who you are. And then you distill that down to three. And so when you find those three things that are your values, because you have to reassess it every few years because you shift and you change. So every five to seven years, you have to make sure you dive in and figure out like, what are my values now? Like mine are beauty, 
mm-hmm. creativity and knowledge. And so in everything that I do and in all my branding, all three of those things have to be available and prevalent. It has to be beautiful. There has to be me expressing and, and adding to someone's knowledge base and me doing something creative and outside of the box. So it's a matter of com- combining every element yeah, together. Exactly. So if, if like if family is important to you, if travel is important to you, and if you know beauty is important to you, then making sure that your brand revolves around you know so all the content that we create has to be visually you know aesthetically pleasing. It has to be you know focused maybe on your family. You know like you had that little the the guy where, where the girl where she's walking and her man is like holding her hand. Mm-hmm. You know so like that like relationship is obviously something that's important to her, and you can tell that through her brand. And so making sure that at every point we're hitting all three of those target values. And so I start with values first. So y'all values, look them up. Love it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ali, for dropping into commas and dropping those gems. Yes. (laughs) We appreciate having you. This is The Plug. You know who's The Plug. It's time to get caught up on the hottest in tech. Keep it locked, you heard. With Sequoia Blodgett. I see you, little mama. I launched my first company, 7 a.m. in 2014 after a long stint of working in the entertainment industry as a commercial and music video director. It was hard. Even though I was venture-backed by one of the biggest VCs in the game, I still was so confused as to how to actually run, grow, and scale the company. I didn't understand how to convert customers quickly and efficiently. I didn't understand which marketing tools to use and how to create sales funnels. I didn't understand staying niche in the beginning and not boiling the ocean. I didn't understand how to stay motivated during extreme times of loneliness and not getting the results I was expecting. After several years, we ended up closing the doors. I started studying hundreds of really successful entrepreneurs to find out how they not only kept the lights on, but were scaling rapidly. After officially walking away from my first company in 2016, several years later, I launched Commas a virtual entrepreneurship resource center. Yes, we're actually a company. I built it to help you guys understand why raising capital too fast will actually hurt you, why you need a team around you to iterate quickly and stay sane, why your business has to stand out because so many people are doing the exact same thing. There are no new ideas and why it's important not to push your personal life to the back burner. Consider commas as your entrepreneurship resource guide so you can avoid making the same mistakes that I did. We cover all things from product to marketing to publicity and fundraising. You can learn more about commas, the actual platform, by visiting commastheseries.com. You can also hit us up on our socials at commas the series. Until next week, it's your girl Sequoia, and I'm out.